We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 89. Not to get all fangirl on you, but this guest today has been an inspiration in my life for as long as I can remember being a young rider. And when I started the Equestrian Podcast, she was at the top of my list of dream guests to have on. So I'm so excited to have her on today. She is a member of the U.S. show jumping team. She is a huge international competitor and an Olympic champion. She has really hard work ethic and has over 40 years of experience in the equestrian industry and over a hundred Grand Prix wins. This lady is absolutely amazing and such an inspiration to me and I'm sure many of you listening. So please welcome our lovely guest, Laura Kraut. I want to get right into this interview because I have so many questions and a lot of our listeners have questions. So we'll get right to it. I'd love to hear about how you first got into the equestrian world. I know for a minute we were both in the same neck of the woods in Wisconsin, but we'd love to hear the details about how you started riding. I started riding because of my mother. She was horse obsessed and she had ridden when she was younger. She actually had ridden saddle horses and I was born in Virginia and she had a student that she taught in Virginia. And for whatever reason, I think the, the horse pulled a cart. He didn't know how to canter, but we loved him dearly. And anyways, that's just, it just started with a complete and total love of, of ponies. And I just never thought of any other sort of outlet. It was always going to be horses. Totally. Awesome. When you were starting doing the pony thing and growing up, how intense was your schedule as far as showing and riding goes? Oh, not intense. Yeah. yeah nothing like, no, nothing <laughs> at all like today. We were intense in that my pony, we kept him at a, at a stable where you did your own thing. So every day after school, we would go and clean his stall and feed him and brush him and ride him if we had time to ride and whatever. Mm. But basically we would see him every day. But as far as showing goes, oh, I doubt, I can't even really remember. But if we did probably five or six little shows a year, that Mm -hmm. would have been a lot. We did shows like where you would do the bareback class and ride a buck where you had to keep a, a dollar bill <laughs> yeah. underneath your knees and egg and spoon and things like that. Basically, that's a little bit how we got going. Awesome. And then at what point did, did you feel like that shifted and you decided that you wanted to take the showing a little bit more seriously? How did that come about? It just came about naturally. We got another pony who jumped and had been a show pony he was a stopper (laughs) which was which was interesting but he would always win the he would win the model and he would win the under saddle so I loved him anyways and he was a little bit fancier so we could go to maybe what would have been the the big Atlanta shows then Mm -hmm. and then I got I ended up 
getting another pony who she was just wonderful. She was all white. She had two blue eyes and one brown ear. She was a, hmm. what they call it. They said she was an Indian pony, ah. but she was just a machine. Never would stop. Just, oh. it was a really good jumper. And so I think with her, I went and did my first quote unquote away shows like Tryon, mm-hmm. North Carolina. That was like in 1976 and um, Aiken, South Carolina. So it just evolved as the ponies got a little bit better and my, and I got a little bit older and a little more confident than, then we would do a little bit more, but for sure we never showed a lot. I went to school like every other kid yeah. Monday to Friday. And if there was a weekend we could go to a horse show, we would, but it wasn't busy. Did you find yourself catch riding a bit in throughout your junior career? Not at all. Okay. No, I ended up working when I was 12, the white pony, we sold her and there was a stable in Atlanta called Hunter Hill Farms and the trainers there were Kathy Paxson and Keenan and they had very fancy ponies and they had seen me ride. And so they called my mother and asked if I would ride their ponies for them, which was Mm. Shocking. Yeah. It just was something we would have never expected. I ended up going basically to work for them. I I did school, but every afternoon we'd go to the barn and I'd ride their ponies. They would teach me. That's where I learned pretty much everything about horse taking care of legs and all of the aspects of, of horsemanship we learned there. And my sister came as well. So I stayed there from the time I was 12 until I was 18. Basically, I rode their ponies till Uh, I was 15, and then they got a horse for me to ride, uh, a junior hunter named Winning Hand, who was very fancy and very difficult to ride. Anyways, I finished out my junior career just riding him. Amazing. And obviously, you absolutely killed it in the junior hunters. At that point, were you also dabbling in the jumpers in the Eck, or what did that look like for you? Dabbling would be definitely the word for the Eck. Because, <laughs> <Okay. laughs> um, you know, in the South, the equitation was not important. Right? None of us, we all loved the hunters. The hunters for us was the big thing. So I did do the medal finals on my junior hunter. Nice. And he was the farthest thing from an equitation horse you could possibly <laughs> find. So I was not at all successful in that. And then I did do the McClay finals on, this is a funny story, actually, I think it was my last year and it was the first year they had regionals. My mother at that time was training some students and she had a student that bought this wonderful horse. He'd only ever jumped three foot. Hmm. And so I broke his green jumping in the (laughs) McClay regionals in Atlanta, which was mind boggling. And he was wonderful as I qualified. And then I took him to Madison Square Garden. So his second competition over a three foot six fence was at the garden. (laughs) Exactly. And he was, I was fifth in the warm up, which was exciting. And then I, I was, I'm sure I was messy going around in the equitation. (laughs) I would have never, I would have never been comparable to the sort of era of all the George Morris students and Bill Cooney and that whole group, but no jumpers. None while I was a junior. How did that transition look like for you then after your junior career when you started doing the jumpers? The same people at Hunter Hill, they got a jumper for me. He was a quarter horse, actually. Okay. And he was he was fantastic. He was tiny. He was probably only about 15'1 or 15'2. But he was the first horse I ever rode in the jumper 
class. Back then, there weren't very many options. It was you you just went in and did the juniors or the amateurs. I did turn amateur, so they gave him to me while I went. I started to go to school, and he was just amazing. He 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 never had a fence down, and he was fast. For my first experience doing it, was like this is the greatest thing ever. You know, he he would do whatever you asked of him. I won classes with him, and uh, so. Really, it was love right away. I just took to it right away. But that would have been in, I don't know, that would have been in 85, maybe 86. So it it was a long time before I got really going doing the jumpers as my main focus. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So you were riding as an amateur. At what point were you like, okay, I want to do this. I want to go all out, full-time career, big picture goals and stuff. What what did that kind of look like through that transition? Well, I went to college in North Georgia for one semester to be near the horses, to be near Hunter Hill. After the semester, I was on financial aid and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I went to my father and I said, listen, I know what I'm going to do. And we're, we're wasting money and time. And he was great. He said, this is what you want to do. Then that's fine. But you're, you're going to have to support yourself. And I absolutely was overjoyed at the idea. It didn't bother me at all. So I ended up moving to Camden, South Carolina. My parents had already moved there and my sister and I had stayed in Atlanta. I ended up moving to Camden. My sister went to ride for Roger and Judy Young. Okay. Back then were a huge stable. Yeah. And I went there as a groom so that I, you know, could pay my way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyhow, I worked for her for, I can't remember, probably six to eight months. And then during that time, some people locally, funny enough, Ron Danta, Hmm. And Danny Robertshaw and people like that asked me to ride some horses for them. And so I think, and back, and now looking back on it, I'm sure Judy was, that was very nice of her to even let me do that because I was working for her full time. Yeah. yeah. But once I started to do that, then I realized that this is the direction I wanted to go. So I gave up my amateur, started, rented a little stable in Camden and started on my own. Wow. So cool. Do you remember being like super intimidated at that point, trying to figure out, okay, how do I put this together? Were you like at that point really eager and okay, this is what I got to do? Yeah. I don't remember ever being like intimidated. I wouldn't have even thought twice about it because I was like just a one track mind. Yeah, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. And that's how it's going to be. And I spent many years catch riding horses. That was something I did probably up until I was about probably in my late Mm thirties or maybe even forties really. But that was how I figured I would earn a living. And then I took Mm -hmm. some horses in for board and it just never entered my mind that I couldn't do it. So I just did it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So then at that point you had your training program, you were growing and building that where it was the idea of the Olympic games and, and really big time levels of the sport. Was that kind of always in your trajectory and part of your plan? No, I'm probably when I was about eight years old, I talked about it. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> because the Olympics were probably on television. Yeah. But no, it, it wasn't at all. Again, back then in the South, it, really the jumpers weren't even a 
a big deal there. I, of course, idolize people like Katie Monahan and yeah. Rodney Jenkins and Michael Madsen. I knew who they were and I'd been to the Florida circuit. Yeah. And at that stage, I'd started to train or, or to ride for Rodney Bross, mm-hmm. who he had a lot of good horses. And so we did go to Florida and Tampa and I got to see it, but I it just didn't enter my mind that I would, that would be my future. I thought I would be riding hunters and maybe some off the track jumpers, which was mainly what I had. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you have been through so many different moments in the equestrian world with the idea of thoroughbreds and quarter horses and then the entrance of warm bloods. What, what do you, I mean, what, what do you kind of look for today when you are scoping out a good horse to add to your string? Funny enough, I generally try to pick a horse that resembles a thoroughbred because I I still, you know, really love the qualities of thoroughbred. And it's such a shame in today's world that people just don't take the time to find them anymore because they're there. It's just, it's so much easier to buy a horse that's already started and produced by the time it's four, it's already been jumping. Where back then you'd go to the racetrack and they'd be four and they would have only run and a lot of them would have had bowed tendon or something. And so right. you'd say, okay, I'll give you a thousand for that. Mm-hmm. You'd have to teach them to jump. And it was a long, it was a long process, but worth it with a lot of the, with a lot of the thoroughbreds. So I do try to find horses that are light, light boned, quick, quick reactions, nice mouths, just that general kind of, I, I steer clear of, of the real heavy types if possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. So you are continuing on with the roadmap of your story. You were finding your success as a professional in in your opinion and kind of your path that went from being successful as a professional, riding more, having more catch rides, to planning a schedule to be able to qualify for the Olympics. Obviously, there's a lot that goes on in between. What, what did that look like for you? It was interesting. I think as I was walk, working for Rodney mm-hmm. Bross, he started to, we started to get some jumpers. Alan Chesler from Florida, Cheryl Farms. He sent us a couple of horses and one of my first sort of Grand Prix horses was a horse called Benny Hill. And so I would say that Alan supplied the horse that kind of got me on the map of jumping some Grand Prix. Mm -hmm. And then I'd ride any horse that we thought could jump a big class. A few years, probably, I don't know, three, three, four years went by. And that's when I moved to Wisconsin. And a good owner of ours sent two of the horses with me. And so I went to a show in Germantown, Tennessee, late in the summer. And there was a man there by the name of Jeff Sutton. And he had a thoroughbred horse called Simba Run. And it was the day of the Grand Prix. And I think it was going to be like 105 degrees. I mean, it's just (laughs) going to be ungodly. Yeah. And he came to me and he just said, would you ride my horse Simba in the Grand Prix today? Uh, Which is so funny because in today's world, you could never do this. Yeah. But I said, yeah, absolutely. So I was riding another horse called Night Magic and I rode him and then I rode Simba. I think I had two down, so I didn't do anything miraculous. Mm -hmm. But afterwards he came to me, I'd like to send the horse with you. Hmm. He said, I'm getting a bit older and I just, I feel like the horse has a lot of ability. 
And anyways, the next year was the Olympics and it was Jeff's idea. He said, I think you need to do the Olympic trials. Anyhow, it was probably through him that I even considered entering yeah. that. And um, back in that year in 92, because of some lawsuits through the USET, it was a completely objective system. It completely. So it was, I, I forget how many trials there were. I think there were 10, eight or 10 trials. There were no drop scores. There was no leniency for anything. So it was a bit, essentially, it was survival of the fittest. Yeah. And as luck would have it, I survived and I ended up making the reserve slot, the fifth slot yeah. to go to the Olympics, which was I didn't even have a passport. I'd never yeah. left the country. Wow. I'd never ridden in a nation's cup. I didn't know anything about what I was doing, but I got my passport and off I went. And then that really was the moment once I came over here and I went to the Olympics and watched that. And then yeah. we had to stay for a few shows after because of this African sleeping sickness thing. They mm. quarantined the mm -hmm. horses in Europe. So I got to do a show and oh, I got to do Rotterdam. Wow. And then I got to do Modena, which was Pavarotti's show. Cool. And that was it. I was bitten by that bug. Yep. <laughs> totally. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I feel like so you hear so many times of uh, riders' first experiences over in Europe. And I feel like that it's just like a, a whole extra level. <laughs> Yeah, that was, it was, I remember walking onto the grounds the first day and thinking to myself, thank goodness I'm the fifth <laughs> because <laughs> it was just a whole different, yeah. it just wasn't anything like what I'd ever seen or experienced. It's honestly an ideal way to experience your first Olympic games. It Well, it was ideal at that time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, um, <laughs> if something had happened to one of the other four uh, mm -hmm. horses or whatever, it, it, it might not have been super ideal, but that being said, I was full of confidence at that time and yeah. you, know, you, you don't know what you don't know. So True. I probably would have just said, all right, ready to go. Yep. Ready to go. <laughs> and the horse was, he was amazing. He could jump anything. So wow. I, we, I, I for sure know we would have made it from start to finish. Yeah. That I know. I don't know so. about the rest. <laughs> I wanted to take a quick second from this awesome interview to talk to you about our sponsor today, Groom Tote. Across all riding disciplines, there is a common thread, and that is riders and their horses have an unbreakable bond. Groom Tote is the only subscription box for the horse and rider where you get to choose the products, tailor-made by you, for you, and for your horse. By way of hand-picked sourcing, Groom Tote sources premium products, full-size products that are proven, practical, and pretty for the subscribers. Each tote is filled with inspirations that every equine and equestrian will cherish. You can skip at any time you want or cancel, but you totally deserve this indulgement. This also makes the perfect gift or Christmas gift, which let's be honest, Christmas is right around the corner. So go ahead and head over to groomtote.com. That's G-R-O-O-M-T-O-T-E.com and grab your tote before it sells out. In each subscription box, which comes every few months, you can expect products from Equifit, Equine Omega, Farnum, Equus, and so much more. So head over to the website, check it out, pick your products, and then get the most amazing box in the mail. Thank you so much, Groom Tote. All right, let's get back to the episode. 
depending on what ring or what competition or show, do you ever walk in and experience nerves or do you feel like you have tackled that and you feel good about going in the ring? I would say, you know, championships definitely like when it's super important. And I would say particularly when you're riding on a team more so than when you're riding individually, but also I'd say it's horse specific. Sometimes you you're on a horse that, okay, maybe this is a bit more than he's ready for, or maybe I, whatever. But generally I would say, I wouldn't say that I really get nerves. I would say it's sometimes just a a bit of apprehension. Mm -hmm. And then once I get on and start warming up, it goes away. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. For people listening who do experience those kind of show nerves of walking in the ring, what are some tips that you would have or or advice that you would give to them? Well, I think the things that I used to do to combat it when I was younger is one, try to distract yourself for the times leading up to the class. Mm -hmm. Don't sit and obsess about what's coming because it isn't going to help you. And, you know, so I, whether you can talk to people or listen to music or whatever, Mm -hmm. go ride some other horse or whatever, try to get your mind off it. And then when the time comes, I I think really just try to concentrate on the job at hand and try Mm -hmm. not to think of all the things that can go wrong, but try to think of just how it is you are going to do it. Right. And that for me always seemed to help. And with all the students I've had, I mainly, most students even when they're very nervous, when they go through the gates, the nerves go away and the and they kick on to autopilot. And so I think for people who get extremely nervous in the warm-up area, have faith that when they go in the ring and they start to really concentrate and they have to concentrate, Mm -hmm. uh, it helps. Yeah, definitely. When you are working and traveling, um, what did you do with clients that you had at home? Or did you have a, a team in place that would continue your teaching? What did that kind of look like with your program? Yeah. I mean, that was one of the big difficulties in the beginning because mm-hmm. I was primarily still doing hunters. So mm-hmm. I was fortunate at the time that the clients that I had were were very supportive of me going to the Olympics. And I just had to really figure out, I had to work my schedule, keeping them in mind because basically that was how I was earning a living. I couldn't abandon everything and rush off to Europe and pursue my dreams. So I think that was 92. And then the next time I came back to Europe was in 2000. So it took me eight more years to get to the point where my business would allow me the opportunity to leave and be gone. I think that time I was gone for a month, but anyhow, it was, it took a long time and obviously uh, a lot of very supportive people who were willing to, my sister at that stage was helping me. And Mm -hmm. so it, yeah, I just had a team in place that was able to keep things going while I was away. Totally. And then throughout the years when you have maybe taken little breaks or breathers or having kids and things like that, do you feel like then when you were coming back into the saddle, what was that experience like for you? Did you feel like your feel and everything was right where you left off? Or was there a little bit of uh, a period where you had to take a step back and and reestablish things again? 
Actually, funny enough, the only time I ever really had to take a break was when I had Bobby. Mm -hmm. And I do remember the first day that I rode, I got on and I couldn't post. You know, <laughs> and I just broke out into tears. I'm yeah. like, I can't post. This is terrible. <laughs> um, because I had no stomach muscles. But no, it all came back really quickly. So yeah. if there's somebody out there that's worried about that, tell them not to worry because yeah. it's it comes back. It's like riding a bike, as I say. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I, my my advice to anyone who is uh, having a baby: do not rush the comeback because mm -hmm. I did, and I then suffered with a lot of back problems. I'd never had a problem wow. with my back ever. Wow! And I started riding uh, at two weeks, and I yep. actually jumped in a Grand Prix at one month after I had him. I actually wow. won it on Simba Run. Oh my um, gosh, how cool. But uh, I, I damaged myself by doing that. So I always tell people, I don't give anyone advice about raising children, but I just give them the advice, do not rush back into the yeah. attack if you can help it. Because yeah, that was it. The back problems were with me for five to six years. Wow. So it was yeah. a long time. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do to kind of work through that back pain? I had osteopaths wow. and I had chiropractors yeah. and I took cortisone pills mm -hmm. back then. This was a while ago, but I did a lot. Acupuncture, Ugh. anything you could think of. Yeah. Yeah. Worth trying it all for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What would you say is an area of the industry that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk a lot about? Probably I'd have to, I'd have to focus on young horses, developing mm. young, young show jumping horses, not hunters. I would say that I think it, it's, again, you go back to what I was talking about with the thoroughbred. I think what people do is now they just buy ready to go yep. horses from Europe. But what's interesting, and as I've found out through the years, is a, a five-year-old thoroughbred was pretty much made. They have a different mentality than warm bloods. Right. So a five-year-old warm blood is still is still very undeveloped and mentally way behind a thoroughbred. Thoroughbreds at, at age five, they they've been to racetracks, they were yeah. running, you know, they it was just a different, it was a different uh breed completely. And I think, unfortunately, because there wasn't a lot of big breeders in the United States of warm bloods, mm -hmm. not a lot of people got the experience of actually learning how to bring them along. They buy, they come over to Europe, they buy maybe a seven or eight-year-old versus a four or five-year-old. Right. And so no one really learns how to develop them. Um, not no one. There's obviously there's people sure. that do and do have a great job, but I don't think it's mainstream. And I, not like it is over here. Yeah. Over here, we go to a, a young horse show and there'll be 155-year-olds. Mm -hmm. You go to Florida and you're lucky at the biggest show in the United States, you're lucky if there's 12. It's just a whole different thing. And then that also goes to my other point, which it's just, it's so expensive to bring along a young horse in America versus over here that it's actually worth it to buy them and leave them with somebody over here wow, yeah. for them to do the job. Mm -hmm. And then when they feel like, okay, yeah, it's seven years old now, it's ready to go, then yeah. you just bring it over. Like I said, it's a piece of the puzzle that's missing in the United States. There's just mm -hmm. not, there's not that sort of 
core group of people who know how to develop and bring on a young horse. Obviously for your horses, I'm sure every story with each one is different, but do you, is that kind of your preferred method is to continue to develop them in Europe or uh, do you bring them to where you are at currently? How does that usually work? I leave the young horses here. I mean, we do Mm -hmm. produce almost all of the horses that I've ever even gotten to the highest level. Yeah, I've started them when they were five or six years old Yeah, uh, or four even. <laughs> and yeah, I used to bring them to Florida, but then it just was so expensive. And yeah. again, even as sales horses, people aren't interested to buy a five-year-old or a six-year-old. The interest isn't there. So mm-hmm. what we do now is we leave them over here. I commute back and forth and do the, the sunshine tour in Spain mm-hmm. and then do Florida. But also I have other riders, Julie Wells, and Charlie Jones, who ride the majority of them. Mm -hmm. I have actually stopped riding five and six-year-olds and they do that and bring them along and they do a phenomenal job. And yeah, so that's what I do. Yeah. And I think establishing again, that team that goes about doing things exactly what you have put in place and you've seen the proven success of your other horses that you started. It's so cool to be able to find people to replicate that format for you so that, yeah. Exactly. No, I'm Uh very lucky. And, and they, yeah, they do a great job. And, and it's one of my passions. I really mm-hmm. enjoy having young ones and developing them. And it takes time and patience, but it can be really rewarding. Mm-hmm. For, for someone who is a professional looking to incorporate more of buying horses young or, or starting to work more on the developing side of their business, what would you recommend as far as, I know it, it's can be a challenging situation to find good contacts and good relationships with people, different dealers and and breeders in Europe. What would you recommend for someone looking to start that avenue of their business? It's a difficult question. I was very lucky that I had a client from Minnesota at the time. He uh, was Dutch and he decided he wanted to buy horses in Holland. and And he looked through a magazine and he just came upon Stahl Hendricks. Yeah. And called them out of the blue and said, I'm so-and-so and and I want to buy a horse for my daughter. And by by some stroke of luck, he landed on one of the most honest, fantastic dealers in the world. And because I trained his daughter, I ended up becoming affiliated with them. And it's been, I don't know, 25 years now. And they've just been amazing. But I think, I think. I guess probably word of mouth and mm-hmm. checking around, making sure that whoever it is that you're dealing with is reputable. And there's obviously, if you're young, you speak with older people in the industry from the United mm-hmm. States who've had experience who can tell you, oh, stay away from that one or whatever. But there's no foolproof way. I can tell you yeah. that. And sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. So it's, it's a bit of a risk, but yeah. any, anything is. Yep, exactly. A question that I kept receiving from podcast listeners when they found out that we are going to do this interview today is the idea of a a young professional looking to gain experience, doesn't have a ton of connections in the industry, but is looking to either find a job under a top professional or work for someone or ride for someone to gain experience. What would be some pieces of advice that you would give to those young professionals? 
I think my absolute definite piece of advice is they have to be willing to do anything. Mm -hmm. They have got to muck stalls. They have to sweep. They've got to be willing to work ridiculous hours. They, I guess there can be no ego involved Mm -hmm. at all. Basically the proof will be in when they can get on and whoever it is they're working for see that they are talented and they have ability that will help them along. Mm -hmm. But from the start, they've got to just really work that you've got a good work ethic. And obviously you've got to have some talent. There's no question about that, but there's loads of opportunities for sure in Europe with dealing yards. And again, I think that they've got to be realistic and know that they might not be the next one in line. They might be fourth in line, Mm -hmm. but if they're at a dealing yard and they have a hundred horses, there will be plenty for them to do and to ride. I think it's just yeah, like I said, work hard and lower your ego and make yourself indispensable. Yeah, that's great advice. I love it. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat today. You are a wealth of knowledge and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.